How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Novel. Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be, how shall I say this, quite colourful. This programme contains strong language and descriptions of an adult nature. Listener discretion is advised. I was in Hollywood trying to sell something to TV or film. And I'm driving around in one of those little white rental cars. And, you know, I'm a horrible driver, right? And and I'm listening to the radio, and the radio is like, it's the 20th anniversary of AIDS. And the person says, at first, America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they came around. And I, like, almost crashed the car. I just thought, oh, no. You know, this is going to be this whole bullshit game where they're going to pretend that they benevolently just realized that they had to do something (laughs) about AIDS. You know, when the truth was that thousands of people fought until the day they died to force the country to change against its will. This is Sarah Shulman. Thank you for coming on and agreeing to do this. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah is 63 and she's a native New Yorker. And being a native New Yorker, she has that characteristic, direct style. Sarah won't take crap from anyone, and I'm fairly certain she never really has. In this program, we ask people all the time about their identity, and Sarah's is a multifaceted one. She's an activist, an organizer, a feminist, and a queer woman. But first and foremost, she is a writer. Her novels are a cult favorite for LGBTQ readers, often centered around the life experiences of queer people in New York's East Village, the place Sarah has called home her whole life. This urge to document queer experience is, I think, an act of defiance, of a refusal to let the lives of LGBTQ people be excluded or sidelined in our creative world. From the team at Novel, this is Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer trailblazers. I'm Sean Fay. In each episode, I'm talking to a different queer pioneer whose story teases out a nuance of our shared LGBTQ history. 
By telling these stories, we'll show the richness and wisdom of our queer community through the ages. And in each anecdote from the past, we'll find strength for the present day. In this episode, Writing Queer Lives with Sarah Shulman. I started writing when I was six. I wrote in a diary that when I grow up, I will write books. So that's what I did. I wrote a history of baseball, but I did no research and I made the whole thing up. I wrote a newspaper about our family. Uh, I used to write plays for Hanukkah and make my brother and sister act them out. You know, it's just always been there and there's really nothing else that's been as consistent. Was that something that you were encouraged in doing, either by family members or people around you? I was born in 1958, and women were not seen the way they are now. So I don't think that my family imagined me to be an intellectual or valued any of that. But it was primarily because I came from a Jewish family that had been heavily impacted by the Holocaust. And like many girls, I was handed the diary of Anne Frank when I was very, very young. I was never shielded from any of that reality. And a lot of girls, I think our takeaway from that book was that girls could be writers. Because generationally, there were a lot of girls writing diaries. Let's take a step back into Sarah's childhood in Manhattan. I lived across the street from a hotel called the Albert Hotel. In fact, the first words I knew how to read were Hotel Albert because it had a sign out the window. And this upbringing in a largely Jewish and Catholic neighborhood in downtown New York helped forge Sarah's political identity. I come from a Holocaust family. So my mother's mother, my grandmother... She had two brothers and two sisters who were exterminated in the Holocaust. My grandfather, his sister, was also murdered. So I was aware of this from the time I was born. And so my first political framework was about the evil of bystanders. That was really, really huge, huge influence on the person that I am today. And then my mother was a social worker And she belonged to the union, the National Association of Social Workers. And during the 60s, they used to rent buses to go to Washington for demonstrations against the Vietnam War. So my mother would take us. You know, we were little kids. We had to get up at 3 in the morning. It would be freezing. We'd be on these unheated buses. And it'd be like a six-hour schlep to Washington. (laughs) And we would go to these anti-war rallies with my mother. Alongside this burgeoning political identity was a queer identity, too, which also had its roots in an act of protest when Sarah was just four years old. It was 1962, and my nursery school teacher was getting married, and she organized a mass wedding in our nursery school class. All the children had to pair up into girl and boy couples, ready to walk down the aisle and get hitched. Talk about setting the expectations young. Anyway, Sarah was having none of it. I refused, and I said that I would be the photographer. And I made a little square with my two hands and ran around pretending I was snapping pictures. So that was me as a marriage resistor (laughs) and my first (laughs) queer action. 
I really like that too because it's not even like as simple as not wanting to be paired with a boy. It's like completely exempting yourself from <laughs> from the wedding ceremony and actually being a documenter. Thereafter, in terms of when you got older, at what point did you start to realize, yeah, this isn't just perhaps feeling a little bit different in childhood, but the language of sexuality or sexual orientation became something you were aware of? So I went to Hunter High School, which was a public high school that was all girls. Audre Lorde went there, Cynthia Nixon went there, Elena Kagan, the Supreme Court Justice, went there. It was for smart girls from New York City who tested into this public school. So I was in an all-female environment of very smart girls. And the romances were between girls. I mean, this was the way it was. Whether people all had lesbian futures, that is not the case. But that was the general social dynamic. You know, people had breakups and it was very dramatic and emotional. And so you could say that that was my first lesbian environment. Sarah left school in 1976 and entered adulthood an out lesbian. There was never any question that this was the path for her. Sadly, her open sexuality tarnished relationships with the close-knit family Sarah had grown up with. My biggest problem as a young person was the homophobia of my family. And it never ended. And I kept waiting for it to end. And it was very painful for me. I had to mourn the loss of my family while people were still alive. And then when they died, it was a relief. And I think that the information that they were never going to change is something that I really needed to know. But of course, I couldn't know. So the teenage Sarah went out into the world determined to be a writer. That's coming up after the break. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. In 1976, Sarah left New York to study at the University of Chicago. 
but her stint outside the city was short-lived, and she dropped out of the course in 1979 and returned to New York and her beloved East Village to pursue writing, initially as a journalist. I joined a brand new feminist newspaper that was just being started called Woman News. It was lesbian and straight women working together for women's liberation. And I started to become a reporter. And I branched out from there. At the time, there was no mention of feminism or gay anything in any kind of mainstream media. If you wanted to write about that, you could not have a career in mainstream media. I covered things like the bars were controlled by the mafia at that point still, and they were racist, and they would what we called double card black people. So black people had to show two IDs to get into a gay bar. I covered the last bar raid in New York City of a gay bar. It was a black bar called Blues. People were beaten up. The place was smashed up by the police. I went and did on-scene reporting. In those days, you could be fired from your job for being queer. You could be kicked out of your apartment. And you could be denied public accommodation, as I was twice. Refused service in a restaurant. (laughs) Sarah reported on the fights against this discrimination in the city. And she joined many of the campaigns, too. She was at the centre of the bohemian queer communities who carved out an activist and creative space in the middle of the bustling city. The East Village was not a destination neighbourhood, so people did not come there unless they lived there. It was primarily a Latino neighbourhood and an ageing Italian-American neighbourhood. And then there were all the freaks, you know, the, the queers, the drag queens, the artists... And you could be yourself because, you know, there was nobody there. New York was extremely cheap. Like, you could work as a waitress for 10 hours a week and that would be enough to live. My apartment was $205 a month and I had a roommate. I had a theater company. You could rent a storefront for $105 a month to put on plays. There was a lot of exciting artwork being made. There was a lot of freedom in a way. And early in her journalism career, New York was rocked by a new and terrifying challenge. In 1981 is when you have the famous New York Times article, July 3rd, 1981, 41 cases of rare cancer found among homosexuals in San Francisco. And then that is a whole new era. I started writing about AIDS when the epidemic was first observed. Now, it was very chaotic because we didn't know what the stories were. Our newspapers did not have any money. We were not paid and we didn't have access to anything. Also, journalists were dying and editors were dying. The whole thing was crazy. So I covered things like pediatric AIDS, which was huge in New York City. I covered women being excluded from experimental drug trials. I covered homeless people with AIDS. But I also covered, like, the closing of the bathhouses when the health department closed the gay male bathhouses. I did some AIDS reporting for the Village Voice. My editor was dying. I had to go to his apartment to get edited because he was too sick to go to the office. You know, it was like that. It was really crazy. Amidst this chaos, Sarah plugged away at her writing ambitions. Alongside being a reporter and campaigner, she wrote her first book, too. 
Much of the book was, of course, informed by Sarah's real-life experiences as a reporter and a feminist campaigner in the East Village. It was called The Sophie Horovitz Story. My first novel takes place inside the sort of lesbian subculture around a feminist collective. But it was a detective novel. And at that time, there had only been two lesbian detective novels ever written in history. Now, that form really appealed to me because I was in the first generation that had always been out. I had never been in the closet. So the idea of putting a lesbian protagonist in a popular cultural form was very, very exciting and radical because we were not supposed to be in popular culture. So I wrote this book, and then I tried to get it published. And I had 61 rejections. And the rejections were like, this book is so funny, it's so interesting, but can't you change the sexuality of the protagonist? Because we think it will offend librarians, which is hysterical because librarians were the first queer professional organization, was gay librarians, but the publishers didn't know that. It was just so bold and daring to try to have a lesbian protagonist, and let me tell you that it still is, 38 years later. Meeting opposition at every turn, Sarah turned to a bit of harmless subterfuge to try and make headway. I had this girlfriend who had another girlfriend, of course, <laughs> and the other girlfriend was at working as a temp, which is a typical lesbian profession, at Scribner's. Scribner's is the prestigious New York publisher, famous for publishing successful authors like Henry James and F. Scott Fitzgerald. She took my manuscript and she sent it to this lesbian publisher in Tallahassee, Florida called Nyad Books with a letter on Scribner's letterhead. And Nyad thought they were getting it from Scribner's in New York, but they were not. They were getting it from the lesbian underground. In 1984, the Sophie Horowitz story was published. The book did pretty well and Sarah was able to write more. And her second novel, really captured the queer imagination. So I was very influenced at that time by the Beats. Jack Kerouac had a book called Visions of Cody that I thought was incredible. I still love that book. And I was excited by all the experimentation, the creative use of words. But I did see that, you know, these guys would go out on the road and then they would have adventures. But if you're a lesbian and you're trying to make it in that very tough world... Just going outside was enough, you know, because, like, I lived in a neighborhood. There was a big drug market on my corner. People knew that you lived alone. People knew that you didn't live with men and that you didn't walk around with men. And that made gay women much more vulnerable to everything. It was more dangerous. So I wanted to take that Jack Kerouac language invention but apply it to a lesbian's life where you were just in a really different relationship to adventure. The book was called Girls, Visions, Everything and was published in 1986. It soon became a cult hit, staying in print until the present day. Many people have told me that they moved to New York because they read Girls, Visions and Everything. And in fact, in the olden days, when there used to be personal ads in women's newspapers, people would say, are, do you like girls' visions and everything? And that was like a way of saying like, are you hip? You know, yeah. are you adventurous? Are you avant-garde? You know, are you East Village? 
I mean, apparently, based on responses I've gotten my entire life, I'm able to describe and articulate structures and experiences that people have but can't name. And when they read the book, it clicks. I've just been incredibly lucky to have the enormous support of grassroots readers my entire life. Sarah has published 11 novels alongside a number of plays and non-fiction works. And besides this prominent writing career, she has found herself at the centre of feminist and queer activism since those early days as a reporter. When the East Village was ravaged by AIDS in the 1980s, Sarah didn't just report on the crisis, she joined the fight to get the government to take notice. The first public announcement of the virus that came to be known as AIDS is 1981. And ACT UP was founded in 1987. And in those six years, 40,000 people died in America. ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, was a grassroots movement working to end the AIDS pandemic. The movement spread across the US and around the world, but its beating heart was in New York City. Activists demonstrated on Wall Street, held a die-in at St. Patrick's Cathedral, New York's iconic Catholic church. They lobbied the FDA, the US drugs regulator, for better access to medication. and even protested at New York's post office to a line of people queuing to hand in tax returns. It was a broad coalition of activists, many of whom, like Sarah, were veterans of other campaigns and protests. ACT UP is very interesting for lots of reasons, but it was a predominantly white gay male organization. But the women and people of color who were in it tended to have a lot more political experience. The older gay men had been in gay liberation, but the younger men, for the most part, had no political experience. But the women had come from the feminist movement, and so we were a lot more confident. We understood politics. We knew about strategy. We supported each other. But as the fight against AIDS continued... Sarah realized this knowledge of how to organize was missing in younger female activists too. Over the years in AIDS activism, new generations of young queer women would come out into AIDS activism, which is a male-dominated movement. The older women started to, I'm saying older, I was like 30, started to notice that the younger women didn't have the same skills that we had because they had never come through feminism. And so, along with a group of lesbian activists, Sarah co-founded a new group to focus on lesbian issues. We decided that we would start this group, the Lesbian Avengers. We were named after the Avengers with Diana Rigg, who for many of us was an early erotic object. Our first idea was to parachute into Whitney Houston's wedding, but we did not do that. Instead, one of the Avengers' first actions was to organize a march, and they had the perfect opportunity. In 1993, when queer activists descended on Washington for another demonstration. 
This one was heavily organized by what we used to call the homocrats, the gay people in the Democratic Party. And it was organized around the military issue. That is, the ban on openly gay people in the US military, which wasn't properly lifted until 2011. This protest had a permit. The Lesbian Avengers March would be a different kettle of fish entirely. It would be unpermitted, loose and expressive, harking back to the heady days of queer protests in the 1960s and 70s. Washington, D.C. was already packed with lesbian activists. All they needed to do was get them to come. We made these club cards. Club cards were like cards they used to hand out because there used to be like a dyke night at a club or something, and it would be a little piece of brightly colored cardboard. And we made these club cards and said that there was going to be a dyke march and we were all going to meet at this certain place. On the morning of the march, Sarah and the rest of the dyke march organizers gathered, expecting a gaggle of supporters. And 20,000 women showed up from all over the country. And we had this huge march all through D.C. without any permit or anything. And once the seed had been sown, the dyke marches spread across the U.S. and around the world. We're moving up quickly, fastly, in a hurry, so get out of our way. (laughs) Something that we didn't think about but did occur was that they all went home. And they went home to their various cities and towns and everything with this great experience and decided to do dyke marches in their own towns. And that's how this national and international tradition just naturally evolved, that people started doing them in their own places. Having been at the heart of these organizing efforts, in more recent times, Sarah's remit has expanded to include becoming a documenter of them. 99 is the internet revolution, and ACT UP was pre-internet. So none of our materials were digitized. We didn't have email, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have any of that. So if you Googled ACT UP in 1999, you would find nothing. Mm. It was like we had never existed. This brings us back to 2001, when Sarah is driving a rental car through Hollywood and nearly crashes when a radio news reporter skates over the fight for aid support. I pulled the car over and I called Jim Hubbard, who was my collaborator. And the thing was that Jim and I, I think we're both the same post-Holocaust Jewish generation. We carry this incredible sense of responsibility to our dead friends. And it really was a situation where if we didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. So we decided that we had to start documenting what ACT UP was and what it had done. We started the ACT UP Oral History Project. And for the next 18 years, we recorded interviews with 188 surviving members of ACT UP. And we put them up online. And the project didn't end there. Jim made a film about the ACT UP movement, which was shown across the US and around the world. And Sarah used the interview she had collected to write a book about ACT UP's fight for change. And this is where all the elements of Sarah's multifaceted identity, queer writer, campaigner, artist, came together. For her, it was a chance to set the record straight on how ACT UP became a successful campaign. There were representations that attributed all of ACT UP's incredible successes to a handful, like five or six, white male individuals. 
And not only is that inaccurate, those people did amazing things and they are heroes, but they are part of large, complex structures and networks of collectivity, of people doing all kinds of things at the same time that created this paradigm shift. So not only is that depiction inaccurate, it is impossible. Because in the United States, change is made by coalitions. And I just couldn't let it go. I couldn't sit there and let this become the record to put out a message that this change can be accomplished by a handful of individuals is destructive and detrimental. And people needed to understand what really happened. ACT UP was an impactful movement enforcing the issue of AIDS into the public eye. Within a year of it beginning protests at the FDA, the approval process for drugs to fight the disease had been significantly accelerated. The success of ACT UP is a testament to what can be achieved through campaigning action. It's a story of struggle, but it's also a story of hope. A lot of people now think that activism means saying what's wrong with somebody taking them down and punishing them. And it's actually the opposite. Activism is about opening doors and creating possibilities, not shutting doors and shutting down possibilities. As for Sarah's fiction writing career, she still has stories she wants to tell. The prejudices she came up against from the moment she wrote her first novel in 1981 have plagued her her whole career and are still around today. But she's ready to battle them. My problem has been the, the gatekeepers of the apparatus. I have never gotten their support, and I still can't get it. And that has been very frustrating as my clock is ticking now. There's so much anti-lesbian ick factor. The ick factor is so high, people don't get it. They don't understand why we love each other. They don't understand why we're important to each other. Britain is different because you have writers like Jeanette Winterson and Sarah Waters and those kinds of people, and they're treated like real writers, and their books are treated like real books, and they get BBC dramatizations, and they get bookers and all that kind of shit. But we don't get any of that, and no American lesbian novel has ever been treated that way. What we have instead is that the, the British novels get imported. What are you most interested in exploring in your work and your life in the here and now today compared to when you were a younger writer? I want my plays to be produced. I want my work to be put on screen. I want to write for television. I want to write for film. And I want to be able to do that maintaining my subject matter with integrity. And this is the battle, but I'm getting closer. We're told that things are good because they're familiar. But repetition and familiarity, that's part of entertainment. Entertainment tells us what we already know. But art expands what we know and how we know. I have a lot to contribute, and that's what I want to be doing. Call Me Mother is hosted by me, Sean Fay, with production from Pippa Smith. Rosie Collier Sean Glynn and Max O'Brien are executive producers. Research by Megan Oyinka. Production management from Cherie Houston and Charlotte Wolfe. Austin Mitchell is our creative director of production. 
Mike Lee Rao is our managing editor. Gavin Haynes is our head of development. Willard Foxton is our creative director of development. Sound design, mixing and scoring by Daniel Kempson. Music supervision by Pippa Smith and Nicholas Alexander. Our theme music is composed by Eli Block. Special thanks to Saskia Edwards, Oren Rosenbaum, Shelby Schenkman, and all the team at UTA. For more from Novel, visit novel.audio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.